Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to talk about Kant and Fichte. And Edmund is going to do the introduction for it. And it's part of a kind of two-part series we're going to do where we discuss how first nationalism and then Marxism branch off from the German liberal tradition. And today we're starting with nationalism and Edmund's going to do the introduction. Go ahead, Edmund. People often think of nationalism as something that's set apart from liberalism and is set against it. Um, For instance, in a recent book by John Mearsheimer, Mearsheimer argues that nationalism often trumps liberalism in political contests and elections because liberalism focuses on the individual separate from society Whereas nationalism focuses on the group, and because we are social beings, uh, Mearsheimer thinks that nationalism has a natural advantage over liberalism, because nationalism is about society in some way, and individualism is about the individual. Individualism celebrates separateness, distinctiveness, or disunity, while nationalism celebrates social unity. And I think one thing that this initial framing might miss, and Mearsheimer by no means ignores this, is the fact that nationalism also, in some respect, prioritises a form of division and disunity. Because nationalism isn't just about celebrating a particular group of people, but it's also about saying that this group, this nation, is separate from other groups, other nations. And in this respect, um, I think we can see a connection between liberalism and nationalism, perhaps a surprising way in which Uh, There are liberal roots to nationalist thought, and I think this can be traced back in some respects to the relation between the thought of Immanuel Kant and Johann Gottlieb Fichte. And Kant was writing in the 18th and early 19th centuries, born in 1724 uh, to a family of harness makers in Königsberg, East Prussia. Kant received a pietist education. Pietism is a branch of Lutheran Protestantism that preaches the individual's moral responsibility to God, uh, not immediately via the church. But for all its love of individual piety, Pietist education tends to instill in students 
a certain deference towards authority, because in, in order to develop this moral conscience in relation to the scripture and the individual's understanding of that scripture, and therefore their relation to God, uh, the pietist believer has to be disciplined and has to have an individual discipline which is instilled in them through a disciplined education. So in pietism, we see this duality, I think, between authority and liberty. And I think between the individual and a kind of discipline that the individual imposes on themselves. And I think this duality also runs through Kant's work. Kant, on one hand, develops a moral theory uh, that comes out of a theory of knowledge, which he developed in the 1780s, particularly in the Critique of Pure Reason in uh, 1781, which he used to uh, underpin a theory of practical reason or a moral theory, which he developed over the coming decades. And the Critique of Pure Reason begins with the notion that we as individuals um, do not necessarily perceive the world as it is directly. In some respect, the way we see the world is coloured by our own subjectivity, uh, our own mind. And so instead of making our minds conform to the outside world, uh, Kant in the Critique of Pure Reason shows how our perceptions of the outside world conform to our own uh, cognitive structures. And so in the Critique of Pure Reason, you see an image of the subject as the primary uh, focus of knowledge, the primary agent which kind of structures uh, the way we see the world, and in doing so, in a way, the world. Uh, and Kant extends this in a way, um, though in some respects he goes beyond it, in his moral theory, which also centres the subject. Uh, but in his moral theory, uh, Kant says that the world that we see, the world that our minds present to us, a world of uh, a series of perceptions and experiences that we understand through certain categories like cause and effect, this world, this phenomenal world, isn't all there is. For Kant, there's another world, and there must be another world, because for there to be a moral law, a law not just of what is, but prescribes what we ought to do, uh, rules not of understanding how things relate to each other in the world as it is, but laws which describe the world as it ought to be. And in order to have such a moral law, Kant argues that we have to imagine ourselves as autonomous. He says that the kind of subjectivity that we obviously already have, because we are, in some respects, embodied separate people who naturally experience the world in certain subjective ways, Kant also wants to say that for us to have morality, we have to assume 
a certain deeper individualism. We have to go further with centering the subject. We have to presuppose that we are free. For Kant, ought implies can. In order to behave in a moral way, we have to be able to hold individuals responsible for things that they do. Uh, and for that to happen, we have to presuppose a world beyond the world of cause and effect, because of course, in the phenomenal world, the world which we experience, everything happens for a reason. There is always a series of uh, causes and effects which proceed according to natural laws. Uh, though Kant makes these natural laws about the subject imposing an order on the world, uh, Kant nonetheless uh, still basically accepts the kind of Newtonian physics in his account of perception, that everything happens according to very regular determinate laws. In the phenomenal world for Kant, it is obvious that we are not free. We are not autonomous because every decision we make proceeds according to a set of prior things that happen. But in the noumenal world, uh, the world as it ought to be, uh, a kind of deeper, more metaphysical existence, Kant says that we can postulate that we are free. We can't be free in the phenomenal world, but we must postulate, as a postulate of practical reason, as he calls it, uh, our autonomy, our individual separateness from the world, uh, our ability to influence the world freely, independently, autonomously. And that, for Kant, is the ground for all morality. He has a lot of other moral premises beside that. But he thinks that at the centre of it all, at the centre of the world as it ought to be, is the subject, the autonomous human being who is able to influence and make decisions with no constraint except from the moral law. And so Kant has this moral theory on the one hand, which centres the subject, centres the individual, even more than his theory of perception and knowledge. But he also has a political theory, and the political theory isn't noticed as much. Uh, partly, I think, uh, for good reasons, because the political theory isn't as novel as the moral theory. Uh, there aren't many thinkers in history who have as fleshed out a concept of autonomy as Kant, at least until Kant wrote their there were people who were emphasising uh, the individual and the individual being at the centre of the universe around the time Kant was writing. Um, but Kant's political theory is quite different um, because you would think that if the individual is what matters, then Kant would endorse some kind of politics that is about worshipping the individual, um, that is about worshipping uh, the individual's autonomy and therefore that acts as some kind of constraint on the state uh, that might mean that states have to be small to conform to the wills of each individual, or that every individual has a right to rebel against the state. But Kant says this is not the case. For Kant, it is only possible to live peacefully with one another, insofar as we are constrained by the coercive laws of the state. And Kant is not okay with subjects rebelling against the state. Uh, and this is, in many ways, uh, shocking. A lot of the exam questions that universities set on Kant with respect to his political theory is, is, is Kant contradicting himself, where he says on the one hand, in his moral theory, oh, it's all about the individual, and the individual is autonomous and separate from the world, and the individual 
uh, must be free. And in this political theory, the individual just has to go with what the state tells them to do. Um, Kant wants states to be republican or democratic. He wants there to be you know, something short of um, Hobbes's absolute monarchy. Um, Kant does prefer a more moderate constitutional framework, but Kant, like Hobbes, denies subjects the right to rebel against the state. Um, so long as subjects could possibly consent, Kant says, to political authority, it doesn't matter if they actually consent. And in this way, uh, uh, Kant is a bit like Hobbes in developing a social contract theory which is hypothetical, not actual. Subjects don't need to actually say, I hereby surrender my right to all things to the state. Just as so long as they could do it, Kant and Hobbes think, uh, it's fine. And so Kant has a moral theory which he doesn't apply to the political. And uh, this, I think, uh, is... Um, comprehensible partly in terms of what happened in the early modern period, um, because Hobbes himself was operating in the context of what Machiavelli said about politics, that politics has nothing to do with morality. And so politics is just about um, raw calculation. And you can't impose your morality on the political, because then you'll inevitably lose out in the game of politics. Uh, and, and you can't transfer these big moral theories to politics. Politics is just not a domain in which morality applies. And I think there's an extent to which Kant, uh, in some respects, agrees with Machiavelli. Kant does make prescriptions about what states ought to do. He does think that it would be better if states had republican constitutions. Interestingly, this is not too different from what Machiavelli said. Um, but Kant doesn't say that subjects can impose this will by rebelling. Kant thinks that that is unacceptable. Um, Kant, like Hobbes, thinks that you need to preserve order in the state. And in, in some respects, both Hobbes and Kant are operating in the shadow of Machiavelli because they don't think that we can impose good order or moral order in the world. First, we have to have order. And they in some respects, take that as the chief implication of Machiavelli. If morality does not apply to politics, then politics is not about primarily promoting good order. First and foremost, you have to have order, and that trumps everything else. And so Kant has this kind of public politics, this um, public-facing image of the political, which isn't uh, entirely consistent with his moral theory. But he also does have a moral theory, and this is where he departs from Machiavelli and Hobbes. Machiavelli and Hobbes don't have a private moral theory that goes alongside the public political theory, at least to the same extent as Kant does. Uh, Kant develops a moral theory separate from the political, and thus he has these two trains running simultaneously, but not really meeting with each other. On the one hand, this more Hobbesian Machiavellian train of thought about politics as a domain in which morality does not apply, as Machiavelli said, and which is therefore just about maintaining order, as Hobbes said, maintaining peace. Even Kant's supposedly utopian writing toward perpetual peace about international relations is about peace, not about some loftier moral goal than that, but basically keeping people alive. And on the one hand, Kant has this very utopian moral theory, 
and he develops his utopian moral theory about the individual. Because if moral morality no longer applies to the collective, Kant thinks that morality does apply to the individual. So you've got this public-facing politics on the one hand, and this private morality of autonomy on the other hand. And Fichte said that, Johann Gottlieb Fichte said that in reading Kant's critique of practical reason, he experienced a revolution in his thought. And uh, Fichte said that uh, he thought that Kant was right uh, to centre the individual. In Fichte's uh, Wissenschaftslehre, his uh, theory of science in 1794 1795, he argued that the principle, the I posits itself, is the fundamental principle of all things. Uh, the ego, the I, me, the individual, that for Fichte is indeed the centre of all things, the centre of moral theory, and he agrees with Kant on that. But he goes beyond Kant, in, I think, in two respects. Firstly, uh, Fichte says that the I, the individual, the ego, defines itself by its separateness from the non-ego. So Fichte does away with the phenomenal noumenal distinction. He doesn't think that there's another world. He thinks that this is the world that there is. But Fichte says that we can have autonomy in this world. We can have autonomy in the world as it is. Um, we might want to have something more than that, and indeed we do strive for something more than that. But in this world, what autonomy practically means is that the ego, the self, distinguishes itself from the non-ego, the not-self, the other. And so to be an individual means distinguishing yourself from other individuals. And for Fichte, this means that the individual can indeed be separate. Uh, from the collective in some way. Uh, Fichte says that the individual can impose their will in some way on the state. Fichte, for instance, grants subjects the right to rebel against states. But uh, Fichte does not uh, say that this is all there is. Uh, Fichte recognises, as Kant does, that the wills of other individuals um, limit, in some respect, our will. And Fichte says that this means, of course, that we need states. And Fichte thinks that coercion, a coercive state, is of course necessary. But Fichte sees no reason to restrict Kant's moral theory. It, and uh, lots of uh, Fichte scholars, uh, such as uh, David James, uh, Geoffrey Church, uh, and uh, Dan Brezil, argue that. Um, Fichte, in some respects, radicalises Kant's philosophy. Fichte draws some implications of Kant's moral theory and applies it to the political. How does Fichte do, do this? How does he make autonomy the rule of politics, not just private morality? How does Fichte, in other words, apply Kant's private morality to public-facing politics? How does Fichte uh, collapse the distinctions between these things? And I think Fichte does this um, through, as he laid out in 1808, the addresses to the German nation, nationalism. Fichte says that the nation is a group of individuals that's not the same as the state. Um, Fichte does say that the state is central to how we organise ourselves, but Fichte 
thinks about the nation as this collective of individuals, um, because of course the German nation didn't have a single state in the time Fichte was writing, it was not until 1871 that uh, Germany got a state across those disparate territories of the former Holy Roman Empire. Um, And so uh, Fichte in 1808 didn't have much to base this on, apart from the, uh, as Benedict Anderson put it, the imagined community uh, of the German nation. And for Fichte, he said, I speak for Germans and Germans solely. And he is thinking of the nation, I would contend, as a macrocosm of the Kantian individual. And one implication of thinking of humanity, of the human race, mankind as a race, as Fichte put it, as divided up into different groups, uh, which have a claim on the state, which is, uh, as Benjamin has put it before, pre-political, that um, nations have claims um, on states. Nations need to have states. And uh, for Fichte, there is an extent to which, um, just as the individual should be self-sufficient, the nation the macro individual should have should have self sufficiency, uh, and he's quite pessimistic about what's been happening in in those territories, which later became known as Germany. In his time, he said that his age is an age of individualism, and he says that that's a bad thing. And I think this, in some respects, contradicts a lot of his work. But he wants there to be more than just the Kantian individual. He wants to apply that to the public sphere. So he wants the German nation to unite itself. But he wants it to unite by distinguishing itself from other nations. And one criteria is language. And he thinks that the language, uh, the German language, which was developing, uh, and particularly among the elite classes of the time, um, and there's been a lot of scholarship on how one reason why Kant's critique of pure reason is so complicated and difficult to read is because Germany as a literary, German as a literary language, uh, was going through a process of development uh, that took so, some time and it was in some respects only really beginning as a uh, scientific theoretical language. Um, and Fichte argues that this German language is the basis for the state, the basis for a a nation that also has a state, a nation state. And he argues, of course, that every state should, um, every nation, every uh, group of people united in some respect by ties like language should have a state. And he says that the nation, of course, internally should unify. He says, I speak for Germans only and of Germans simply, without acknowledging, indeed leaving aside and rejecting all the divisive distinctions that unhappy events have wrought for centuries in this one nation. But one of the ways in which he tries to make this possible is by distinguishing the German nation from other nations. Uh, First and foremost, in the concept of autonomy, or as he put it, self-sufficiency. Whatever has lost its self-sufficiency, Peter writes, 
has simultaneously lost its capacity to intervene in the stream of time and freely to determine the content thereof. So Fichte wants the German nation, this imagined community, this imagined macrocosm of the Kantian individual, to be autonomous, to be separate in some respect from uh, the rest of the world, but also influencing it. And I think we can think of the ways in which nationalism restricts citizenship and the nation state restricts citizenship to members of this imagined entity called the nation as an outcome of the notion of autonomy. Because saying that the individual is autonomous means in some respects saying that each individual is separated by their experiences. Kant admits this in the critique of judgment that in our, aesthetic te- in our aesthetic tastes, we are subjective. Now, tastes of what we like and what we don't like, we behave in a necessarily individualistic way, in a way that's separate from other individuals. And in the same way, if we think of the nation, in Fichte's sense, as an autonomous subject, as an individual, then what we're doing in imposing that structure of autonomy is we are limiting the content of what a state can be. We are saying that as each nation must, if it is an individual, have different experiences from every other nation, um, it must therefore be limited somewhat in what can unite the members of said nation. And that means that for Fichte, the criteria of the nation, the nation state, must be more limited than what the criteria of the state used to be. You can't just say a state is a multitude of citizens. You have to go further than that and say, well, a rational state, as Fichte put it, uh, must be a unity of subjects united by certain characteristics, which are determined by the structure of the nation as an autonomous subject. And so I think that's perhaps the link that we can draw here, that Fichte tried to apply Kant's private morality of autonomy to the public sphere by characterising a pre-political entity called the nation and by distinguishing that entity from other entities and by drawing this self-other division in the same way that he does in the private individual sphere at the public level, at the collective level. Uh, I think in this way, through the concept of nationalism, Fichte tries to radicalise Kant's individualism And I think it's in this respect that we can see perhaps the liberal roots of nationalism in the way in which Fichte took Kantian liberal individualism in the private sphere and applied it to the public sphere through the doctrine of nationalism. Ooh, that's good. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. So, as you can see, in both of these cases, you need autonomy, and autonomy requires some conception of free will. So, in Kant's case, Kant can't find free will in the world of experience, so he posits it in his metaphysical realm. In Fichte's case, 
he posits autonomy as a kind of self-sufficiency mm. on the part of the nation. Yeah. But in both cases, you need some kind of free will or autonomy mm. as, your, as your grounding point. And then once you've got autonomy, then since the subject, whether it's the individual or the nation, is not thoroughgoingly shaped by the world, the subject can then act upon the world as if from outside it. Mm. And when I use that term pre-political that Edmund so kindly credited me with uh, using, when I'm talking about pre-political, I'm talking about treating something as if it's autonomous mm. in this Kantian or uh, Fichtean sense, mm. treating it as if it has causal power independent of political arrangements. Mm. And in this way, liberals and nationalists argue that these pre-political entities that are more fundamental for them than the state have claims on the state. Mm. So the individualist liberal will say that individuals have a claim to be represented in some way by the state. And the nationalist will claim that nations have some claim to be represented in some way by the state. Mm. Because for both liberals and nationalists, there's something that comes before the state that has autonomy and freedom and so can exist independently of social arrangements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I think that you are definitely, definitely going in the right direction there. Yeah, I guess the notion of pre-political individuals, pre-political nations, there's a sense in which Fichte is doing quite a lot of work here because Kant does not, in his political writings, straightforwardly apply his concept of the individual. Um, Kant does say that there are respects in which individuals, you know, the notion of a pre-political individual constrains the state and means that some kind of republican in constitution is ideal. And uh, it means that Kant is quite okay with commerce and with the spread of commerce, um, partly because it allows individuals to make decisions um, of their own accord. Um, but... It's yeah. kind of similar to Smith yeah. in the last episode, where yeah. we made the point that Smith is saying, yes, you need to have uh, some level of moral virtue for society to function well, mm. but that virtue for Smith is taken care of in the private sphere. So even though Smith would say, yes, the market economy requires uh, people with strong moral sentiments, he would say that, that those moral sentiments are to be provided for in the private sphere. And therefore, his political theory does not have to offer an account of how those sentiments will be generated. Mm. Similarly, for Kant, you have that sharp division between the public political theory and the private moral theory. Mm. Where for Kant, it would be great if the public political theory aligned in some way with facilitating the private moral theory uh, through some kind of republicanism or something. But that isn't necessary. And indeed, because in political theory, politics is more fundamental and the maintenance of order is more fundamental 
than the pursuit of moral values. Kant is entirely at peace with having a state which doesn't meaningfully attempt to produce his moral theory. Mm. Whereas Fichte both radicalizes the individualism as individualism. He is more praising of the French Revolution as Kant is. Kant does think that the French Revolution is something people over Europe should be sympathetic to, but he doesn't deduce from that the notion that the French Revolution was um, something that should be legally authorised by the state, that the state should allow citizens to rebel, whereas uh, Fichte does suggest that, more than Kant does, that it is okay for individuals, as individuals, to rebel against the state. Um, But through the state's use of coercion, Fichte wants to limit that. And (laughs) so Fichte, in in some respects, uh, both makes the pre-political individual central to his political theory and also makes the pre-political nation central. You can have both anarchist and nationalist readings of Fichte. Yeah, yeah, and that comes out of the fact that liberalism understood broadly, if you... Modern political theory loves to posit pre-political entities hmm. that have claims on the political. And this seems to be the way of kind of fighting back against Machiavelli. It comes out of what Machiavelli contributed, hmm. but it's a way of trying to bring morality and politics back together. Yeah, yeah. Right? And it's a way of doing it by, so Machiavelli says, uh, you know, you have to have this political normativity that is separate and distinct from morality. Um, And a lot of the moral theorists of the 18th century more or less agree with that and posit moral theories that are not straightforwardly political. Hmm. I think that Kant does that. I think that Smith does that. I think that where it starts to change is with nationalism, because nationalism will say that it is the nation that is pre-political rather than the individual. Mm. And of course, a nation, uh, an abstraction like that is easier to represent than specific individuals. I think part of the reason why Kant's individualism could not produce a political theory, it's the same reason that, say, Hobbes in his concept of representation does not give the individual subjects any claims to be individually represented. Right. Yeah. They are only collectively represented. The sovereign in Hobbes's theory personates the commonwealth, which is a fiction. Yeah. Right. And therefore, the sovereign is representing the commonwealth rather than the individuals in the multitude. They can only be represented by the sovereign mediated through the abstraction of the commonwealth. And so similarly here, you couldn't really make a representative argument out of Kant's political theory, because if you have all of these individuals that are distinctive selves, that are autonomous, that are thinking in their own way. The only way you could unify them is if there is a universal moral law that they all aligned with. Hmm. And that would require that they all be morally 
perfectly good that they all be uh, able to live well. And that would be, in in Kant's very, very ideal moral theory, the kingdom of ends. Mm, yeah. yeah. Where you have everyone autonomously choosing to be morally good and everyone abiding by the universal law. And in that kingdom of ends, would we even need a state? What would it even, why would we need one? Mm. Uh, the state is necessary because we don't live in a kingdom of ends of that kind. Because we don't have people who exercise their autonomy to align with the universal law to anything like the degree that would be necessary to have that universal kingdom of ends. Mm. Uh, and so because we don't have people autonomously just choosing to submit to the universal moral law to God for Kant, because God is central in his moral theory too. Uh, because we don't have that, Kant can't have a politics which is consistent with the autonomy because we are free for Kant to exercise our autonomy in all kinds of uh, other ways. We are free, you know, to fail to submit to the moral law. Hmm. You can't have a, a politics that comes out of that freedom. But if you instead conceive of the free agent as a nation, and you define a nation as unified around a batch of cultural signifiers or a way of life, then it's easier to conceive of a state which represents that collective fiction. Hmm. Right? And so this is kind of how the, the concept of the nation is very different from, say, Hobbes's Commonwealth. Because Hobbes's Commonwealth, when you come together to form the Commonwealth for Hobbes, you don't get to bring any of your personal beliefs into the formation of the Commonwealth. The sovereign decides what the Commonwealth is. Hmm. And you don't get any further say in the substantive content of the Commonwealth. Hmm. By contrast, a nation, because a nation has to be unified around a basket of cultural signifiers, things like language or religion or behaviors, it has more substance to it. And so there's a possibility of challenging the state, saying that the state is not actually aligning with the values of the nation. Mm. that there's a state-nation conflict. Mm. For Hobbes, the sovereign has the right to decide what the commonwealth is. You've given up your right to make that decision to the sovereign. So there's no basis for pitting the commonwealth against the sovereign. The commonwealth is personated by the sovereign, so the commonwealth just is whatever the sovereign asserts it to be. Mm. But here, because the nation is pre-political, the nation is something that the state has to answer to in some way. And the nation is a more realistic, uh, plausible thing to have a state answer to than the individual because there are too many individuals and they're too different from each other. They're too multitudinous in Hobbes's language. Yeah. And so liberalism could not produce a political theory until it became nationalist. Yeah. Yeah. Because li liberal individualism doesn't provide an account for uh, what a state could represent that's realistic apart from anarchist accounts, which, of course, negate the state. Mm. If, to, if you say that actually every individual has to consent to political order, you know, you, you 
in your introduction, you made some jokes about how Hobbes and Kant say, well, individuals only have to hypothetically be able to consent, yeah, yeah. right? And the anarchist will say, no, they have to actually consent. Well, that is never going to happen. Mm. And so that kind of political theory can only lead to anarchism. Yeah, yeah. And there certainly was an anarchist tradition that came out of liberalism and came out of these readings of autonomy. But that tradition did not succeed in producing political order, in part because it has commitments that are inconsistent with the existence of a plausible political order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So instead, you end up with nationalism. Nationalism is the realistic outcome of liberalism. Yes, it is. The other tradition that we're not really talking about on this episode so much is utilitarianism. Utilitarianism yeah. also tries to do a, an intermingling of the individual with the collective. And utilitarianism also tries to be political. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, running through Bentham and Mill. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's a quite different way of trying to bring these things back together. And I think that this is part of what distinguishes, say, continental political theory from uh, the political theory which prevailed in Britain during this period, which was very utilitarian. Yeah. And now in the Anglosphere, there's all this talk of Rawls and, and post-Rawlsian political theory. And Rawls, of course, was a Kantian contractualist. Mm. So Kant made his way back into the Anglosphere uh, through Rawls. Mm. At, but one of the things that's curious about Rawls and Rawlsianism is how much it tries to, how much uh, discomfort many Rawlsians have with nationalism. Mm. And of course, when Rawls wrote his Law of Peoples, the law of peoples posits these separate and distinct peoples in much the same way that Rawls's theory posits separate and distinct individuals in the earlier work. And in many respects, the law of peoples looks quite a bit like uh, Fichte. Yeah. There are separate and distinct peoples and each one's entitled to a state within reason. Hmm. Hmm. Right. And Rawls even says you don't have to have liberal states. You can have decent states that are you know, uh, not perfectly liberal and not fully in alignment, even with the kind of theory he proposes in political liberalism, his later work, which is much less demanding. Mm. Uh, but even those decent states are entitled to go on in, in whatever form they take and to not be interfered with by liberal states. And for the most part, the Rawlsian liberals in the Anglosphere kind of shrugged at law of peoples and said, eh, we don't much care for that. But I think that one of the crises we've seen recently is this Kantian inflected Rawlsianism that's come back into contemporary political thought and which has uh, implications that tend to be either anarchist or nationalist. When you look at Rawls's theory Either you're saying that you can have a state and states can take a relatively wide variety of forms that what counts as a reasonable state is broad enough that it can accommodate lots of different types of states. And that's basically what Rawls argues in Law of Peoples. 
Or you take it in some different direction and say that unless a state conforms very heavily to particular to a particular value set, it doesn't count as as okay. Hmm. And I I think that there hasn't been enough of a reckoning uh, with the nationalist implications of this kind of theory because there's also not been enough of a reckoning with the anarchist implications. If it doesn't go in the nationalist direction of there being multiple distinct different nations or peoples Mm. that have claims over the state, then it goes in this radically individualist direction where the differences among individuals become too vast. And I think that the way that Rawlsians try to resist that pull, the pull in those two directions is by trying to claim that there is some kind of overlapping consensus, that we can get enough people close enough together on enough questions that it won't go in the anarchist direction. So they argue, for instance, that it's a state that no one could reasonably reject or which everyone would have some reasons to accept. Right. Mm. And in this way, they're trying to argue that there is some kind of reasonable state which we can get people in practice to go along with that is is kind of in the direction of the kingdom of ends for Kant. It's something that you're expecting people to, in practice, embrace enough for it to prevail. Mm. And, and I mean... The the argument, the Rawlsian argument often relies on hypothetical consent. It says that no one could reasonably reject, but it also relies on enough people being reasonable, on the concept of the reasonable being broad enough that it includes enough people that you can in practice have stability because Rawls is interested in practical stability. So, yes, you can have some unreasonable people who don't consent on that theory, but the concept of reasonable is supposed to be broad enough and inclusive enough that you don't have very many people who are left out. Hmm. And so I think that the the Rawlsian version of Kantianism relies on a consensus existing, which Kant himself, I think, recognized would not exist in the real world. Yeah. I think, yeah, it is somewhat, um, when people say of Kant, oh, why, Kant, did you not apply your wonderful private moral theory to the public sphere? I think this, in some respects, you know, this this question that people sometimes ask, um, you know, Kant may consider that question insulting to his intelligence, because Kant sees it as blindingly obvious that in the political sphere we can't apply this utopian moral theory, because Kant realises that this moral theory is itself premised on this phenomenal noumenal world distinction, uh, or at least on an exaggerated concept of individual freedom, which can't in practice exist in the physical world, but also in the social world, in our relations with each other. Uh, And that's because in our separate bodies, we have different experiences. And I I think there is a... a bit of a difficulty here, and I think it's understandable why Rawls takes Kant in the direction that Rawls takes him through the the notion of a an overlapping consensus, because uh, Kant has this notion of uh, 
embodiment which is often uh, taken to be a, a bit too abstract um there there is this notion um in the literature of um Kant having a view which as uh, Angelica Nuzzo put in a uh, in the book Ideal Embodiment, Kant's Theory of Sensibility, uh, Nutzel argues that uh, Kant has a view of the subject which is very ideal and abstract. Um, Kant thinks that uh, though we do experience the world um, in, in the ways that we experience the world, which one would think would be in different ways, if we're in separate bodies, surely we experience the world in, in different ways. Um, because Kant uh, has this uh, idealist notion of the world, that it's the subject which organises the world rather than the other way around, you know, we apply uh, what Kant calls uh, forms of intuition, uh, ideas like space and time, which Kant is perhaps ahead of his time in, in taking these things to be somewhat relative, uh, rather than this kind of Newtonian view of physics as existing outside of the world and being very objective and law-like. Uh, Kant notes that the laws of nature are, at least to some degree, uh, stuff that our, our mind imposes on the world, the way in which we see the world. It, it is, to a great degree, coloured by our subjectivity. But, but I think this, because Kant is trying to uh, navigate between empiricism, on the one hand, which emphasises our individual experiences of the world, our perceptions of the world, and rationalism, on the other hand, which emphasises very abstract reasoning about mathematics um, and what Plato called the forms, very abstract ideals, which we can have some uh, fleeting uh, conception of, but not through empirical experience, through some kind of reasoning uh, process. Kant, in trying to navigate between these two uh, extremes, uh, formulates this th this theory which uh, focuses on, on bringing experience and reason together. And so through formulating this very elaborate theory of the forms of experience and the categories of understanding and categories of how we think about the world. Uh, but in doing so, in providing this big structure, uh, Kant kind of forgets about the fact that there are other human beings uh, sometimes. I mean, <laughs> Kant um, has this big theory of the subject, but unlike Fichte, uh, Kant does not make a big deal about there being separate subjects. At least in the critique of pure reason, uh, Kant is very much focused on how the subject, how this ideal subject uh, perceives the world. And in doing so, uh, Kant forgets the ways in which experience is subjective. And I think this is, in some respects, something that Kant overcomes in the critique of, uh, of judgment, where Kant argues that the way that we make aesthetic judgments, not empirical judgments or normative judgments, judgments about how the world is or ought to be. Aesthetic judgments, judgments about taste, about what we like, the stuff we find pleasing, uh, the stuff that we regard as, as, as beautiful. Uh, these aesthetic judgments for Kant are subjective. And here he is meaning not necessarily the kind of ideal subjectivity he early, earlier formulated, 
But he's really talking about how different people have different views of the world. We may have the same categories of space and time. We may all think about cause and effect. We may even have the same moral law. But Kant understands that our aesthetics, our tastes, our uh, the our physical desires are particular to each person. And this means, I think, that Kant, in the Critique of Judgments, recognises uh, how our embodiment really is material and how we are physically separated from each other in such a way that we have different experiences. And therefore, though we may have the same kind of basic cognitive apparatus, uh, we may have this kind of Hobbesian natural equality in the way that our minds are structured, at least roughly. Because we have different experiences, we view the world in in separate ways. And these ways may be subtle, but they are big enough to make a difference in politics. And so Kant understands that when it comes to relating humans together in society, in a state, that the fact that we have different tastes, that we find different stuff pleasing, that we find different leaders more appealing than others, means that it's nigh on impossible to get a real, actual consent to any particular political authority. Kant realises that any social contract is going to be hypothetical. And in this respect, Kant has uh, this very realistic political theory uh, versus a utopian moral theory. And I think one of the ways in which he does this is through noting uh, that which is also central to Hobbes's political theory, which is the fact that we are embodied subjects in separate bodies um, and having therefore separate experiences. And I think you know, through applying this to the nation, through conceiving the nation as, the indiv- as an individual, separate from other individuals, um, Fichte applies Kant's theory um, to, to you know, have this structure, the structure of autonomy, the structure of disunity, which implies a certain content of distinctiveness. Because if we are separate, then we will have separate experiences. And if we have separate experiences at the individual level or the, uh, quote, national level, then we will come to different opinions. We will have different views of the world. Uh, and of course, yeah, this, yeah, this yeah. aesthetic point is, is yeah. very important. Yeah. And especially because, so, you know, one of the consequences of the split between morality and politics is that you could have political theories that were very brutish yeah. and you could have moral theories that were hyper idealized. And because mm. when you pull these things apart, each of them can run off. And they're, when you're not trying to make them fit together, they can become very, very isolated from each other. Which is, I think, one of the weaknesses in general of moral political thought, uh, of, of excuse me, of modern political thought and modern moral philosophy, uh, because these things have tended to run away, they are very alien and they don't converse very well with each other. Uh, and of course, one of the consequences of this is you know, Kant, in his elaborate utopian moral theory says that the moral law comes from God and that you need to believe in God to believe in the moral law. And this means that if you stop believing in God, the foundation for morality goes away because the morality relies on a divine commander Mm, mm. that can instantiate the moral law. 
And of course, what happens in continental political theory after Kant? People stop believing in God. Mm. And that leads to Nietzsche's claim, you know, that God is dead and we have killed him, you and I. And the German political and moral theorists who follow Kant take it quite seriously that the loss of belief in God has destroyed the basis for morality. And that means that there no longer has to be any pretense of making the politics reflect the morality. Mm. Now the politics is purely an aesthetic game because if morality is dead, then all moral questions are aesthetic questions, which means all moral questions become questions of taste. And if you look at Fichte and Fichte's conception of the nation, what is it that the nation has in common? It's not a commitment to the universal law. It's not a commitment to a moral theory. And the moral theory is universal. The moral theory would theoretically apply to every person, not just to people in particular nations. What does the nation share? The nation shares a bunch of contingent aesthetic tastes, contingent aesthetic cultural behaviors language, stuff that does not have moral weight. And so what you get is a bunch of nations that assert their autonomy by asserting it. For Fichte, the the assertion of the distinction between the self and the other is itself the foundation of that distinction. Mm. So these nations, by asserting their existence, make themselves real. Their content is cultural. It's aesthetic. And so, therefore, the Uh, states that are being linked up to these aesthetic nations have no moral rootedness at all. Mm. And I think a big part of why uh, German political theory becomes so dark in the 20th century is that these theories have laid the foundation for, eventually, Carl Schmitt. Yes. And Carl Schmitt's argument that the... uh, Nation is a group of friends united around some shared content, and that content can be anything. And it doesn't matter whether that content has any kind of larger moral value, because Schmidt is saying, well, now we've replaced God with whatever it is that we happen to care about, and that can be anything. Hmm. That's where we end up going with all of this. Mm. And I think in large part as morality, once it was delinked from politics, morality was free to become very, very utopian and unrealistic and irrelevant to the political. And you know, Machiavelli was saying the church with its politicized morality was constraining people in ways that were not good for them. Uh, and the church's morality had become opposed to important normative political projects like the unification of Italy, Hmm. right? Uh, That were important to Machiavelli because he needed to stop France from repeatedly invading Italy and devastating it. And the church was keeping states divided and therefore keeping them vulnerable to invasion from France. Hmm. Right? So once that happens and you have to break politics off, then morality becomes free to become elaborately unrealistic because there's no need to politically instantiate it. Hmm. And once morality becomes elaborately unrealistic, it then becomes very easy to simply drop belief in it. Hmm. Because if the morality is, is a kind of beautiful but absurd metaphysical picture, it's very easy to just go, well, come on, really? Do we buy that? Kant, in 
proposing this distinction between the phenomenal experiential world and the noumenal metaphysical realm, he's basically saying in the experiential world, yeah, it's all Newtonian and all cause and effect, uh, but, but morality can still exist because in this metaphysical plan, we posit it. Mm. And this rests on your willingness to posit it in a metaphysical plane that by Kant's own admission is not part of the reality that we experience. Mm. It's very easy to not believe in that. Very, very easy. And Kant's theory straightforwardly implies that once you stop buying that, everything is aesthetic. Yes. And yes. therefore, you know, what, whatever exists ontologically, whatever's relevant for politics is whatever we happen to assert with no rules or, or no limits on what can be asserted. Mm. So it caves in mm. and gives way to a nationalism which becomes thoroughgoingly aesthetic in its value structure mm. and therefore can't make any moral defense against fascism mm. because it's given up on that. Yeah, I mean, one way in which we can see in Fichte some, uh, yeah, definitely some ways in which uh, Fichte anticipates uh, Schmidt is that in the Foundations of Natural Right in uh, 1797, uh, Fichte writes, the subject must distinguish itself through opposition from the rational being that, as a consequence of the preceding proof, it has assumed to exist outside of itself. So it's through opposition from the other that the self realizes their, their selfishness, in a way, that you need to distinguish the self through opposition from the other. Um, and Very similar to the Schmidtian friend-enemy distinction. Yeah, yeah. And this is rooted in a conception of autonomy. He says that in order to, quote, posit itself as an absolutely free being, the subject must separate itself completely from the free being outside of it and describe its efficacy to itself alone. That which alone made a choice within this subject's sphere is the subject's I, the individual, the rational being that becomes determinate through opposition to another rational being, and this individual is characterised by a determinate expression of freedom belonging exclusively to it. And, close quote. And of course, what Fichte is saying here is not that we can't relate to each other in society, but when we do, we each have our own sphere. We each have our own domain, and we each have our own little private enclave wherein we assert our autonomy. And part of asserting that autonomy is saying that this enclave is separate from other enclaves that every person's little private sphere is separate from every other person's private sphere. And of course, that's the notion of a private sphere. You know, whereas there is, you know, theoretically, with a state, one public sphere within which people relate to each other, there are many private spheres because privation is an absence. You know, as Augustine put it, privatio bone, an absence of goodness. And in this case, an absence of the public sphere. And without a shared public sphere, all you have left is embodied individuals separate from one another, competing 
in a struggle, as Hobbes put it, of power after power. And I think we you know, definitely see how, as well as uh, Kantian private autonomy and uh, Fita's application of Kantian private autonomy to the public sphere, you know, with Kant having a kind of private morality, and I think uh, Fichte having a private politics as a consequence, uh, I, I think as well as these concepts of private autonomy and public autonomy, we get definitely this, this concept of utility uh, from utilitarianism. And I think in many respects, autonomy and utility are the two ways in which the moderns try to manage the uh, the, the loss of public political morality and the separation, firstly, between politics and morality that Machiavelli draws, and then the uh, separation between the public and the private sphere that evolves partly as commerce develops. And uh, you know, so you get the concept of autonomy, which is applied. It for, with Kant to the private sphere, because if morality doesn't relate to the state, surely uh, morality has to be with somewhere else, with the individual. And the individual, if it's not a state, is a kind of private subject, a state unto itself. And I think Kant's moral writings, in many respects, is describing every single individual as a little state, as a little sovereign state, uh, with its own set of laws, uh, and with its own kind of moral prescriptions. And Kant wants this all to be the same. He wants us all to have the same moral law. But yeah, it's definitely the case, as Benjamin's pointed out, that once you lose the metaphysics, once you lose the religion, that that all falls apart and you're left with individual tastes, individual aesthetics. And uh, I think in that sense, we can see how how clearly distinct uh, the uh, these modern concepts of politics are from ancient ones. Uh, you've talked in the past, Benjamin, about how uh, you see in Schmidt a a, a, a both narrow and thick concept of politics. And I think through the distinction between structure and content, we can understand this, that, that uh, kind of Fichtean, Schmittian politics has a narrow structure, a, a, a single nation state separate from other nation states, um, uh, but a thick content with a, a set of characteristics that uh, you have to meet in order to be a member of that nation state. Language, culture, in inverted commas, and then later, uh, tragically, uh, more uh, other characteristics are added to that which thicken it uh, to not just uh, linguistic ties, but arbitrary features of the way with, that different human beings look. Um, and then that contrasts with the prior concepts of politics because. In ancient times, say in the Roman Empire, you had a very broad structure, not not a nation state, but this, uh, they didn't really have a concept of nation in the Roman Empire, but this broad, this broad state, which includes lots of different provinces with uh, this broad structure with thin content, with a, a thinner set of characteristics of what it means to be a citizen. Um, you don't have to have a certain, uh, have a certain cultural 
set of aesthetic tastes or look a certain way to be a citizen of the Roman state. Citizenship is to some degree limited, but as it is expanded, it's not limited by these concepts of culture and nationhood which evolve in modernity. These are not criteria for the ancients, for the ancient citizenship is in a way prior to these other things, that you get culture after you get the citizenship status. You, you get politics, uh, and then you get this other stuff. <laughs> you have- <laughs> yeah, it's the submission to the Roman law which makes you worthy of being included. Yeah. And once you live under Roman law, you will be Romanized by Roman by by do, living in that yeah. way. So it's the willingness to submit to Roman law that qualifies you for inclusion. And then over time, living in accordance with Roman law will restructure to some degree the way that you behave. But the thing that is the qualifier is a willingness to submit to that legal system. Uh. And that is a much looser set of of criteria than you know, it's got to be your religion, it's got to be your language, it's got to be you know, all the things that are included later. Hmm. It's easier for someone to say, okay, I will submit to that law, even if they don't speak your language, even if they don't look like you. And I think in terms of, you know, to take it the other way and go forward a little mm. bit, maybe in this kind of series of episodes on Germans, we should also do something on, on Nietzsche and Weber mm. or, or something like mm. that. Uh, because what happens after the belief in morality is dropped is that German political theory becomes very, very overtly aestheticized and very much about managing aesthetic conflicts that are no longer taken fully seriously. Mm. as moral conflicts. And you get lots of different types of ways of dealing with that, from Nietzsche saying that really, you know, life is about the dominant master creating value, creating aesthetics, uh, and that states chain up these aesthetic geniuses and therefore ought to be destroyed and replaced with small Greco-Roman style city-states mm. where the genius can flourish. Uh, then you've got you know, Weber's position saying that the state has to oversee a selection of different values and that the practitioners of the value sets have to have the maturity to realize that their choice in values stems from the state and from the state's protection of a plurality. And therefore, they have to have the maturity not to undermine the state, which gave them the option to embrace the value that they chose in the first instance. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Schmidt, who says that the state should straightforwardly commit to some set of aesthetic values. And who cares what set, provided that the state is for something, that the state's got to really take a stance, regardless of which stance it is. Mm. Uh, and. Uh, you know, Hannah Arendt, who also sees the public sphere as a place where you have a plurality of different values created through intersubjective dialogue. In all of these cases, the state it becomes positioned in an aesthetic contest among different value sets hmm. that aren't, none of which are inherently morally better. So therefore, none of which are right, none of which are wrong. And German political theory begins to celebrate newness in values hmm. for its own sake. Hmm. And uh, difference and variety for its own sake without subjecting these values to moral inquiry. Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, a celebration of disunity. Yeah. Yes. And so some of those theorists say, but you should still really believe the values because if you don't really believe them, then, well, what's the point of them? And others say, well, you have to preserve the choice in values because if you can't autonomously choose, then you don't have autonomy. Mm. And autonomy is the thing that is being asserted there as implicitly the value that's most important. And so some of these theorists will go in the, the, the more liberal direction of trying to say that it's about the autonomy of the individual. And others will say, no, the, the state has got to represent a collective value set. And therefore, it's got to defend that value set and curate it and protect it from the agonistic competition and ha- ensure that those values triumph over competing value sets. And a lot of that has to do with whether you take as the pre-political unit, the liberal individual or the nation. Mm. But I, I feel that that is a relatively small distinction between what we would call liberal theories and nationalist theories. If the, the main difference is whether the pre-political unit is the individual or the nation, but the rest of the theory is more or less the same, that this thing is given autonomy, this thing is painted as having a claim on the state. Mm. You end up with theories that are very close to each other, and that's why someone like Max Weber, who is proposing that the state protects autonomy, um, can call themselves liberal nationalists. Hmm. And indeed, there were political parties in the 19th century called liberal nationalist. Hmm. These things did fit together rather, rather well. And one of the things that Fichte says is that you know, the French have not properly understood their own revolution. And it's because the German language is better than the French that the Germans do. And the Germans can do it better. Uh, and I think that you know, this concept of the nation as this thick basket of cultural signifiers mm. very much comes out of, of German political theory. Because when you look at you know, the French revolutionary discussion of the nation, it's not about what unites them together vis-a-vis other nations throughout the world. Hmm. Hmm. It's simply that the state gets its power from the nation, and therefore the state must answer to the nation in some fundamental sense, Hmm. that sovereignty ultimately resides in the nation. Yeah, yeah. And so the French, uh, the French revolutionary theorists, I'm thinking like C.A., uh, for instance, give you the the very, very beginning of this, but only the very beginning of it. It's this Kantian emphasis on autonomy Mm. and on value choice Mm. that fleshes out nationalism in the German accounts. Yes. And so you really can't have nationalism without this this liberal autonomy emphasis. Yeah, yeah. And you know, nationalists who are passionate about defending nationalism will say, no, no, they're defensive nationalists. They think that every nation you know, should get its own state and that states shouldn't try to impose their national characteristics onto other nations. Yeah. 
except in self-defense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in this way, frame nationalism as a way of defending plurality. Uh. (laughs) These things are just, they're very intermeshed. They're very intermeshed. And that becomes clearer, I think, when you look at it in the broad historical lens of all of the different ways of thinking about individual and collective, which preceded this modern emphasis on autonomy. Yeah. And it's very modern because you don't really see it until Kant and Smith and the 18th century, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Machiavelli splits the moral and the political off, but Machiavelli isn't positing the individual as existing outside of politics. Yeah. Quite the contrary, really. Machiavelli is still trying to do this. Machiavelli made the split in service of trying to bring back Roman values. Yeah, yeah. But of course, Roman values are not Roman values once the moral and the political are split. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't until relatively late in the game that we got this this emphasis on autonomy. Yeah. And I do think it's caused so much trouble. So much trouble in political theory. Because it's a fundamentally unrealistic principle, which Kant understood, which is why he didn't try to build a political theory out of it. But that hasn't stopped the anarchists and the nationalists from trying. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I think that about wraps us up for this week, unless you've got anything you'd like to add, Edmund. Yeah, I... I think that one other thing I'd add is that there's a sense in which politics, because of course in saying something's pre-political, we're assuming some kind of concept of politics. And because um, of course for uh, Kant, uh, Fichte, and, and even for Schmidt, what they're doing is not formulating a concept of politics. Schmidt says that he's his his friend-enemy division. This is the concept of the political. He entitles the work the, the concept of the political. And I guess one question is, why do we think that's not political? I think one reason is that politics is, and I will say the word, <laughs> is finding a golden mean between, on the one hand, uh, material needs, our needs, uh, our survival needs, and our moral values, our reason, uh, and indeed our aesthetics, that kind of bundle of things that's sometimes referred to as philosophy uh, by Aristotle or or as culture by more modern thinkers. There is this balance this polarity between, on the one hand, the stuff we need to survive and the stuff we need to uh, thrive. We've referred to this in previous podcast episodes as as the first political question, as Bernard Williams puts it, which is a question Hobbes is primarily interested in. The question of how to survive, what do we need to survive? Um, uh, on the other hand, the second political question, how can once an political order is established, which keeps subjects alive, how can that political order be made acceptable to subjects? Uh, 
uh, we call this the, the second political question. And I, I think that in some respects, politics is about balancing between these two things, between our material needs and our, and our values. And I, I think that one thing that we found in this episode is that autonomy is in some respect a flight from the political, because it emphasises the cultural or moral or philosophical side of things disproportionately. It emphasises our uh, our moral needs, and it tries to treat morality separately from politics. And when you treat morality separately from politics, you get some kind of autonomy concept. Because if you've got no, no no state, what can possibly enforce morality? It's got to be, for Kant, the individual. And we've got to conceive of the individual as some kind of sovereign. Because without the state... You have to, without an external state, you need an internal state, a state that's within each and every one of us. Uh, and on the other hand, as well as this, you know, this individualism, this autonomy fetish that, that culminates with Fichte in nationalism as a, a macrocosm of the liberal individual, you've also got on the one hand, and we've touched on it, this notion of utility, of utilitarianism, the, the satisfaction of our material needs, but also our, our kind of our satisfying people's preferences, but often to do with economic utility, to do with the things that people need or think they need or want that relate to, to their bodies. Whereas the notion of autonomy is a often very spiritual, framed as some kind of metaphysical separateness. And, and I think that the, the things that the problems with having utility and autonomy uh, as the foundations of politics is that if you just have these two things, nothing else, then you forget the need to balance them, to balance material needs uh, with our moral values. And I think one thing that, uh, say, Aristotle can help us understand is the notion of politics as finding some kind of golden mean, which allows us both to stay alive, to have our material needs met, to have some kind of utility, uh, but also to have, uh, Aristotle doesn't call it autonomy, and I don't think we need to, but at least some kind of liberty. For, for Aristotle, this is philosophic liberty, time for contemplation, for philosophy, time for thinking about morality. And of course, we can't have um, you know, either or, we do need both. And I think the way in which both can be secured is through, is through politics. And the fact that modern political thought so often centres on utility and autonomy, on our material needs and our abstract moral concepts of the individual uh, suggests that what the moderns are missing is the political as this golden mean, as this way of balancing different considerations, balancing our material needs with our, our moral pursuits with each other. And uh, I think one of the reasons, perhaps, why modern political thought uh, becomes a, a bit of a cycle between um, states which emphasise utility, which emphasise economic needs, and states which emphasise autonomy, is partly due to this uh, loss of the political 
as a domain in which these things are brought together. Because I guess with Machiavelli, morality is separated from politics, so morality runs away. And then you get, uh, with the rise of commerce, the economy coming out from under politics, and you get markets running away from the state. And these things come back on the state. Markets come back on the state and restrict what states can do. And then this Kantian morality comes back on the state and restricts what the state can do. But by this point, you've lost politics as a realm of balancing. By the time you get this Fichtean combination of all these different trends from economics and culture, Fichte calls his ideal nation-state the closed commercial state, as he put it in 1800, a state which is a nation-state, which has markets, which has commerce internally, which is utility internally, but which doesn't trade with other states, because those are other nation-states, and we've got a for Fichte, preserve our own, whatever that means, and we've got to uh, you know, have these separate these separate states um, doing their own doing their own thing, and in, in this way we get uh, this kind of state, which is because it's commercial, is very occupied by economic needs, because it's closed, it's separate and supposedly autonomous from other states. Uh, but we've actually in this whole process lost the state as a balance, as a way of balancing these economic and moral considerations with each other. And in that way, I think we might have lost the golden mean. Yes, yes, the needs of the body and the needs of the soul. Hmm. Yeah. I thought that was a wonderful way to end it. Well done, Edmund. Thanks. It's been a great fun. I think fun. you did great. Well, it's been great fun discussing right. it. Yeah. So, so to wrap up, uh, I think we're going to stay with this thread a little bit. Yeah. We have very carefully avoided talking too much about Hegel and Marx on this episode, and we're going to do some Hegel and Marx on the next sure. one. So get ready for that. Uh, and of course, if you'd like to support the show, do feel free to tag along on patreon.com slash political theory 101 all lowercase, no space. Thank you guys so much for listening, mm. and we'll see you next time when we've got more Germans. Bye. Bye. Bye.